Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. We're again focused on the commodities supercycle. Returning to the show is Jeff Curry, Global Head of Commodities Research at Goldman Sachs. And updating us on the trends he identified in our first episode back in February 2021. What has changed since then? Have redistributed policies, energy transition, and deglobalization accelerated since that point? And what does it mean for the commodity sector as a whole? Where could prices go? And what are the solutions available to governments and companies to tackle this new uncertain world? Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that I'll be moderating some sessions at the upcoming Reuters events, North American Commodity Trading event in Houston on June 8th and 9th. So please join us there virtually or in person. And as always, please do leave a positive review on the platform you're listening on. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Jeff, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me back. It's nice to have you back. So last time you were on, it was February 2021. And really what looks like now, a very prescient conversation from you on, on where things were headed, on being at the, in the start of a, a commodity supercycle. Um, and the theory, your contention at the time was REV, that the R, E, and V were leading up to this commodity supercycle. And that was redistributed policies around the world, energy transition, and then versatility in supply chain, this idea that as a result of, of COVID and, and, and other geopolitical events, countries, companies were looking to find alternative supply chains more secure from sanctions and trade wars and so forth. Since that time, obviously, we've seen commodities very much in the front page of, of, of the news cycle, an incredible run-up in prices, which I know that uh, you believe still has a long way to go. Before we dig into each pillar of, of that theory, can you just give us an overview of where we stand? Has anything changed broadly in, in that description? You know, if anything, the whole case is far stronger than what it was you know, a year ago. And it's, you know, the, the, the retrenchment in supply has made the, uh, the supply story stronger. The demand story is stronger. Uh, the deficits are bigger. Any inventory cushion that was here a year ago has been exhausted across all the different markets. Agriculture is in such a severe state of depletion. Now you're now talking about the potential of, you know, severe shortages in places like North Africa. Um, you know, natural gas in Europe, you know, is in a crisis mode. Oil is quickly likely to follow. Um, yeah, I think the most surprising aspect of everything is despite the fact that the case is so overwhelmingly positive right now, investment has, has collapsed across the space. You see it in the equity market. You see it in the, in the bond markets. You, know, you see it in commodities themselves. You know, the, the, the lack of investment in the space is startling. And you know, mm. we'll probably spend a lot of time talking about that. So the fundamental case, to answer your question, far stronger than where it was a, a year ago. Despite that, no investment, which just reinforces the supply case. So, so we're positive. Well, we just hopefully expect to see some investors have the same interest as we do come into this place. I think the best way to describe this market, it's long on conviction, short on position. And I want to come on to that because that's having real world effects right now and exacerbating a lot of the issues, especially in the, in the trading community. One thing I've noticed, you've, you've shifted from REV 
to red. What does that D stand for? Deglobalization. Nobody seemed to get the B for uh, resiliency. It actually, they, I preferred an R, resiliency in supply chain, because that kind of captures everything. Deglobalization, regionalization, they're all the same word. But we like redlining commodity demand. You get that idea? You're just pushing commodity demand to to limits that it, where it should not be. And, and it's across the entire old economy that we're seeing this very strong goods demand. But let's just take a step back and, and talk about where does red come from? You know, as we argued, you know, a year ago, COVID is the catalyst that created the seeds for this super cycle. The supply story was well in place, you know, going back to, you know, a decade ago, but ultimately at its core was COVID and the policy response of governments around the world simultaneously to COVID. The R stands for redistributional policies. Um, that's just direct transfers to lower income. You think about it this way. COVID was a crisis of inequalities, whether if it was income inequality, wealth inequality, race inequality, age inequality, you pick your inequality. And it was global in nature. And ultimately what these governments did is overnight, they shifted the focus of policy to social need from previously being on macro stability. And when they focused it on social need, they focused it on the disadvantaged groups. And when we think about why this is important for commodity demand is that all commodity bull markets and all periods of inflation are all driven by low income groups. And you know that's, I think, the part that's missing here. I think most people believe, oh, inflation is bad for low income groups. No, inflation and commodity bull markets are created by low income groups. To understand this, let's look, look at this following, you know, the following observation. Commodities are volumetric markets. How do you quote an oil market? 100 million barrels per day. How do you quote a copper market? 20 million metric tons per year. It's in volume. How do you quote a financial market? You quote a financial market in um, you know, billions of dollars of market cap. How do you quote a GDP? Trillions of dollars of output. They're dollar. They're notional dollar concepts. And that distinction is really critical here, is that you're bullish in oil market if the volume of demand exceeds the volume of supply. There's no discount factors, no interest rates, nothing like that. But when you look at a financial market, you quote it in dollars. You have the discount factors, interest rates, all of that matter. Now, why am I bringing this up in the context of COVID and social need? The reason is that the world's low-income groups control volume, and the world's rich control dollars. Why? Through wealth and income inequality. Are there very many rich people in the world? The answer is no. There's very few rich people. There's a lot of low-income people, hence why they control volume, but they don't control the dollars. So let's ask the following questions. Can the world's rich create financial inflation? Easy. They just pump money into the stock market. Can the world's rich create GDP growth? Easy. They pump money into an economy. Can the world's rich create commodity bull markets and inflation? The answer is it's numerically impossible. I'm going to repeat that. Numerically impossible. Why? There's not enough rich people in the world to create that volumetric demand growth. Only the world's low income can do this. You know, you look at the 2000s, 
That commodity super cycle was driven by 400 million low-income rural Chinese. There was a gigantic wealth transfer between rich Americans and, and Europeans and that 400 million low-income rural Chinese. The, two, the 1970s, it was the war on poverty, 250 million low-income rural Americans and Europeans brought out of poverty. That's what created that super cycle. And so bringing us back to COVID, and this is really what I've watched over the last year, is that those policies directly benefited those lower income groups that consume this. Now, let us go back to your initial question about, you know, are these policies continuing? They've been turbocharged. Let's go through each one of them, redistributional policies. You know, we're seeing it right here in Europe right now with the response to the energy crisis, direct transfer payments to be able to pay for the energy bills. That, that, does, that prevents demand destruction and keeps, keeps the, the tightness going. Hmm. Um, let's, let's go with the E, the environmental policies. That's the, that's the green capex coming out of, out of the war. There's lots of talk of, you know, much more green capex. And then the D, deglobalization. That's um, look at what's happening in Germany. Um, you know, they have Nord Stream 2 going, but they've reached out to the Qataris. The Americans contract more supply or, yeah. you know, building military. So I think you get the point. All of these stories have really been picked up in importance. So just staying on redistribution, um, it makes great sense what you're saying. Okay, we've, we've sort of seen this energy crisis and that having more, triggering more redistributed policies. But with the end of COVID, do you still see, I mean, are these trends reversible? Or are we in for a, a long period of addressing inequality on a global basis? When we look at inequality, it is as bad today as it was in the 1920s. And interestingly, what happened in 1920? That was the previous peak of, of globalization. Uh, but what allowed the world to tear down that, that globalization was the League of Nations. It came out of World War I. The first time ever in the history of mankind we could do um, economic sanctions. And by the way, from 1920 to 1979, inequality got better, meaning that everybody got more equal. But think about what happened between 1920 and call it 1980. Communism, socialism, labor unions, trade wars, all of this was erected to protect um, domestic industries. And it got to a point, it just became so inflationary. Um, and what did Reagan and Thatcher do in 1980? Um, they came down and just deregulated it out, tore down all of that. And what are we doing again? We're rebuilding all of that protectionist policy. And, you know, it's, it's like to point out the Europeans just in, you know, the month of February unwound two decades of energy liberalization and, you know, power price caps, windfall profit taxes, that all smacks of that era pre-1980. So in terms of thinking about, you know, are we this, 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 just, you know, the tip of the iceberg, we're just getting going. And I like to point out, Everybody tells me, what if the Americans you know, go Republican that come this, this, this autumn? Well, who came after LBJ? LBJ created this, laid the groundwork for the 1970s. Who came after LBJ? It was Nixon, a Republican. You know, this is the point I think I made you know, a year ago when we did this, is politics gives the people what they want. In the current environment, people want these kind of policies. And it's everywhere in the world. Germany just went left. Latin America went left. Think about since the last time we did this call, how many governments around the world went left? There's a substantial number. Yeah. Okay. So 
let's move on to energy because the <laughs> the two substantial things that have happened since we last spoke has been basically an energy crisis. We saw huge gas prices at last summer, which had consequences for the trading community. We've obviously seen what's going on in, in particularly in Europe. We're starting to see gas prices rise to a phenomenal level in the US, not seen for 13 years. Oil's gone from 60 to 120. And this ties into, there's, there's, there is an investment story in this, both at a macro level, what, what's behind this, but also right now, why there isn't money flowing into it. Can you talk to us about energy? Perhaps before we dig into the obvious, we had, we spent quite a bit of time talking about energy transition itself and the trigger for demand on metals. Most of those that metal supply chain, the critical metal supply chain sits in China, and it's going to be very difficult for Europe and the Americas to or North America to build their own supply chains. It takes a long time. <laughs> Permits take a while. Can you just give us your take there before we move on to oil and gas and power itself? Yeah, I think, you know, when we look at, you know, it goes, you know, this whole idea of resiliency in supply chains and, and you know, this deglobalization, and particularly given everything that we have seen in places like, you know, Germany, that is the immediate response of, of the, is to diversify your supply chains as much as you possibly can. By the way, on that, let me just make a note on, on Germany. And I've learned this from many of the manufacturers, industrial producers in Germany. Germany can't work off of off of LNG. You know, here's a simple point I like to say: LNG. I've never been a fan of it. It's an extremely expensive fuel. You're taking natural gas out of pipeline, liquefying it, putting it into a 300 million dollar floating vessel that is a thermostat with um, a freezer around it. Putting it in there, floating it halfway around the world, regassing it, putting it in a pipeline, and um, trying to run a manufacturing base off simply does not work. The only way it's going to work is like to point out, build the BMWs on top of the gas field and ship the BMWs. Don't ship the gas. Too expensive. So, you know, that that said, doesn't stop what we're seeing in Germany reaching out to Qatar, Germany reaching out to the US to diversify those supply chains. So how much of progress have we made since a year ago? Uh, look at the U.S., that trucking problem, the transportation problem, the warehousing problem. All of that is due to too much domestic activity that doesn't have the capacity to accommodate it. So this is going to be a five, ten-year process before you actually really start de-bottlenecking you know, many of these supply chains. It's just going to take time. And now you throw on top of the war and what's going on in China again, it's just going to be it's just that much more difficult. It's fascinating that actually you look at container rates and those have shot up to the US directly because of that huge ramp up in, in demand, which ties back to your, your first point. Europe is looking toward LNG as the solver for cutting off Russian gas. Is that a nice story? Is that, is that a possibility? You know, the reality is um, Germany Inc. won't work without pipe gas. There's a long relationship there, and where else are the German or the Russians going to send this gas? You know, ultimately, you know, the, you know you're likely to see, you know, some res resolution there, um, because again, I'm going to say it's just cheaper to build the BMWs on top of a gas field somewhere else in the world and ship the BMWs than it is to move liquefied natural gas into this. You can you can create power for heating and cooling off of that, and, but you know, it's 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 quite difficult, and so that whole model was created because it was cost-effective to move that gas into Central Europe and use it to, to process. Same thing with the chemicals in places like um, in Dusseldorf and, 
and things like that. So, you know, there, there's a, it's going to be, I think the saner minds will probably prevail in the long term. I know what I'm saying sounds preposterous right now, um, but I think it's really difficult to argue that you're going to operate Europe off of LNG. You're going to have to find some other alternative energy source. You spoke earlier about investment and you, you're seeing this sort of there's this everyone is very positive on commodities but you're not seeing it flow through into actual actions is that as a result of such pressure from investors from consumers into energy transition and you're just seeing we just haven't been you know typical financial institutions have not been willing to put the money into hydrocarbon infrastructure and that's completely exacerbating this the, the picture you know, I think it's a, I don't know the answer to this for sure, because I'm not the mentality of the decision-making process. I think it's a multiple of, of answers. It's just not ESG. One, um, this sector has abysmal returns. I don't need to tell you about that. It's been a rough last 15 years. You know, when investors think back, you know, it was two years ago, the losses in the, in the sector were nothing short than epic. We were at negative oil prices two years ago this month. And that's memory is in is in investors' mindset. It's volatile. It's difficult um, space to make money. Uh, it's long cycles. So you got to be willing to to stay the course. So it has that going against it. That is the core of our revenge of the old economy story. Also, the revenge of the old economy is predicated. New economy has better returns. Investors preferred Netflix over Exxon over the, the last um, decade, and hey, the returns in Netflix were better. Um, Exxon and the, the the energy and commodity space have got to demonstrate returns. It's going to get capital to come to the space, and one way to do that is through capital discipline, which they're doing. And the other way is for through through higher commodity prices. And by the way, the seventies and the two thousands were had also had this revenge of the old economy story. The set the seventies had the nifty fifty in the sixties, which was the new economy. Then it took all the capital away from the old economy and starved it of its ability to grow the supply base going into the 70s. Um, but then you saw it again in the 2000s with the dot-com boom, and then again more recently with, with the bang boom. So that was there. What makes this one different? And while you alluded to it in, the, uh, in terms of what's going on with ESG, what I have learned, particularly watching Europe over the last three to six months, um, if you asked me in December, I said ESG could solve the decarbonization problem, but it's going to be very long and very expensive. I've now come to the conclusion it simply will not. It's going to fail. And the reason why is look at the free cash flow yields of these energy companies. They're trading 30%. Some of the coal guys are 100%. What does that mean when I say free cash flow yield? high? That means the stock price is so low that you could buy back 30% of the market cap in one year, and in three years, you bought the whole company. Some of these coal guys, you can take private in one year and pay back your entire investment. You know, things like, like U.S. Steel, you can buy it for one and a half billion dollars. I mean, these numbers, eventually these companies will all go private, which then defeats the whole purpose of ESG to begin with. And really, uh, you know, coming to this is carbon is a negative externality. Really, only the governments have the capability to price an externality. And what you need here is well-defined cross-border global policy around decarbonization that has penalties with very steep fines and even potentially going to jail. You know, I know this is you know doesn't sound very you know what I'm saying here, but the reality is 
because you have the situation going on in Russia, Ukraine doesn't give you the right to restart the coal plants. And if you restart the coal plants, you, know, you got to pay a price. There has to be a huge penalty. And right now we're stuck with this, oh, maybe we'll do this, maybe we won't. We'll talk about more green capex and so forth. But you need well-defined policy. And the problem is, is that you're getting you know, this lack of investment is driving these companies potentially going to private, and it's just choking off the flow that you need to the sector, and it's likely to create a big problem. One last point on this, you know, the underinvestment theme really is, I think banking regulations had a big part in this, in the sense that there is leverage ratios right now that came off the back of Dodd-Frank in 2014. And basically, they basically limit the amount of leverage that banks can provide to sectors. And what are energy and commodities the most capital intensive of all? They need more capital than anybody else. And what happens is you're stuck with uh, a lack of investment. Banks, and by the way, you guys yourselves, we just our investment in the whole commodity space has been really low over the last decade. Banks don't have the capacity to, to service it. And then they bump up against leverage ratios, which happen to be, I've been told by policymakers, hey, these things are inflation-proof. They're not. They're bonds in the the numerator, commodities in the denominator. That creates a really misallocation of capital. So bottom line, I can't answer which one is driving it. There's a lot of things out there that are preventing the capital flows. But I think the key point here is without investment, and there's only one thing that can eradicate stagflation. There's only one thing that can eradicate a commodity super cycle, and that's investment. Um, So you have to get the investment or um, we just go backwards. Yeah, that's, that's, there's so much to unpack there. It is fascinating how there's this deleterious result of those commodities that don't fit ESG are going private, are handled by private companies who are much less regulated. We're seeing that in coal, right? The, the returns in coal trading, my friends in coal trading won't appreciate me saying this, but were phenomenal last year. And some of the houses doing it were, are, are much smaller because the big houses have left. So that's, you know, that is definitely something we're seeing. And we're also seeing those private traders stressed by that same result, right? You've had a retrenchment of banks, financing commodities over the last decade, a combination of low returns, but also scandals and, and other things. We talked about this a fair bit with on other episodes. And all of this has come together right now where you've got severe worry. I think the Dallas Fed came out just today, we're recording on the 19th of April, talking about the risk of margin calls in the commodities markets. So it's it's all bundling up into quite a perilous moment for the sector, for the traders, as well as for the typical producers. I want to make a point on that the margin calls. Everybody gets worried about, oh, it's potentially systemic. This is just normal operations. Prices go up, margin calls are going to get bigger. And this goes to my point. Oil's two times what it was when we talked a year ago. That means it needs two times more capital. Banks aren't willing to give it. And by the way, that stuff is riskless in terms of trade finance and all of that. It's not going to say riskless, but it's about as riskless as you can get. And so, you know, all this noise about systemic risk here and all that. No, just bottom lines. It needs more capital. Somebody's got to pony it up. I think that that's the problem that that is missing here is we don't have the access to the capital for the sector just to do normal working day-to-day operations that we would have had, you know, two, three years ago. And does carbon, for me, it seems like it's that uncertainty, that lack of penalty, that lack of clarity, that lack of global policy around carbon that could unlock this. Because at the moment, you've got lots of 
large public companies, especially with you know consumer facing, building up huge inventories of voluntary carbon credits in anticipation of a future announcement of being net zero. But it's the same thing that is stopping investment into the sector because of ESG concerns. But also fundamentally as well, it's you know there's a downward trajectory when you look at those hydrocarbon markets in the context of energy transition. Would having that global coherent carbon penalty price tax, whatever you want to call it, or even market, would that unlock that investment and give surety to investors that you know there these externalities are being taken account of? Absolutely. In fact, I really come to the conclusion that that, that, that is the only solution here. But implementing that is going to be incredibly difficult in a more deglobalized world. I think it's just useful to go, let's take a step back about how do we solve the war on acid rain, which is desulfurization. Um, by the way, it's a similar problem. The world was pretty nasty in terms of the pollution um, in the 60s and the 70s. Smog was a result of it, you know, the for deforestation, all these different problems were that came up. By the way, it's very similar dynamic. You know, at the very beginning, you know, Germany was very much opposed to it. Yeah, and there was talk of you know banning fossil fuels and so forth. The Americans and the Soviets ignored it, largest emitters. But eventually, the problem becomes so overwhelming in places like America. It took Lake Erie catching on fire and people to see the visibility of the damage it was doing to get motivation around in, you know investment. You know when you know it was Nixon who signed in law the, the Clean Air Act amendment and. And by uh, by the way, on that, the word conservation, conservatives, think about the connection there. Historically, it was the conservatives that were the ones that did these policies. Labor was always focused on wages and growth. But I think the key point here is it was, it was you know, you got to see a visible train wreck of the pollution to get that there. Then once you started to do it and people became focused on the Soviets and the Americans wrapped up the policy in a nuclear treaty that then gave them enforceability to impose it on NATO and Warsaw Pact countries with fines and jail time and everything else that went with it. Clearly, the, the Germans were opposed to it at that point, as we now know that, that Volkswagen cheated in, during, in, during that time period. But the key point was the enforceability, a well-defined policy with rules. And what did that give rise to? A sulfur market. And we created all the technologies around desulfurization. I mean, it ended up costing a lot less than what people feared back in the 60s and the 70s. And problem solved. We don't have any more sulfur in the system. Ironically, sulfur cooled the planet. Carbon heats the planet. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is, is your three biggest emitters, U.S., Europe, and China, represent two-thirds of the emissions of, of carbon. You can't get the three of them to, to agree, let alone create enforceability across borders. So now in this more deglobalized environment, it's getting more and more elusive. But I think the one thing that creates common unity in there is fear of seeing something really bad, and that could probably change the politics as well as the coalitions. So is there going to be a Lake Erie on fire moment this time around? Potentially, is is it Miami under two feet of water, and that creates that fear? But I think you got to get to that point. And unfortunately, I don't think oil prices exploding and running out of oil supplies because everybody's going to point the finger. It's got to get to some type of event like that. Then you can create that environment that solves this problem. But I think the key point here is, you know, you're talking about an offset market, and there's a compliance market. You got all the different markets out there. They're really just one market. 
like there wasn't desulfurization. And then, you know, you figured out how, how to remove it out of the fuels. You didn't ban the fuels. I know a lot of the listeners are going, hey, wait, desulfurization was far easier to solve. Then. Now, I'm not going to say that they're even close to you know, decarbonization, but we haven't put any money into carbon capture, removal, and all those other technologies because there's no way to benefit from it. Are we seeing leadership across the commodities sector pushing for a carbon price because that would unlock investment? Or are we just not even at that level of understanding at the moment? I think you you definitely have the leadership pushing that direction, but I don't know how many people are listening to them. The real voice you need is just the the voters in the US and Europe that have got to start pushing for, for that to happen because they're the ones that that the politicians play kowtow to, and they're the ones that um, ultimately are going to make the decision. And places like the U.S., um, they're unwilling to pay the price required to get it. By the way, what they don't realize is they're paying a higher price for energy under an ESG regime than they would under a carbon price regime. In the tax revenue, here's the other one. They, the local governments don't get to collect the tax revenue. It goes to places like Russia, Saudi Arabia, and the rest of the big oil producers around the world. And it doesn't go to, one, investment in green capex, and, and obviously to help out lower income groups in both U.S. and Europe. Okay, before we move on to deglobalization, because the one word we haven't really mentioned here is Ukraine and, and the consequences of that. Let's just talk food for a moment, which ties into Ukraine. You mentioned earlier there's famine unfolding in East Africa. This could be the real consequential commodity story of 2022, when because we know from even the sort of slight spikes in hindsight that we saw in 2011, you know, that triggered the Arab Spring. How serious could this story get? Very serious. Um, and and it's it, and it's not a problem. It just started with Ukraine. This is when I mean, you were at record grain prices coming off the back of you know, a really too bad harvest in Latin America. I mean, my definition of climate change is two standard deviation events happening year after year. That's been the case in places like Latin America, which leaves it very vulnerable to, at least the grain market, very vulnerable to any supply shock. And then boom, you got your supply shock on top of that with what, you know, what happened in Ukraine. You're talking 25% of global exports. And so that they hit from this thing is very significant. And, you know, the question is, is how hostilities in Ukraine, how do they look during this planting season? Because if you don't plant, you're going to lose that Ukrainian harvest, which will just make this problem, you know, that much more serious as we go into the new crop season as we look out into next year. So definitely uh, keep your eye on this. This is, you know, I would say wheat and corn are the ones you really need to watch. And by the way, what are the Americans doing? Throwing out the idea of a bigger ethanol mandate. Yeah, exactly. Like, can we just talk about biofuels for a moment? Because yes, you've got that mandate thrown out. You know, you've got this global push again, tied to ESG scores and goals of whether it's airlines or whomever it is to use renewable fuels. There's some question out there as to whether they're actually any better than uh, than hydrocarbon fuels, albeit they're not from fossil sources. Could we see a stage very quickly when food prices go so high? that actually that biofuels get stumped by that? I think that's a realistic possibility this year. And especially if they try to, if they try to, you know, if they go into an environment where they try to up the mandate, take a more, and by the way, the amount of grains requires that go into biofuel production is, is incredibly large. 
And, you know, it's going to create, make a bad problem that much worse, which means they probably have to backtrack on it. Then you backtrack on that, you know, globally, it's like 3 million barrels per day of oil supply in an already tight oil market. So it's a, it, you know, it's, it, it's what we call is BTU convergence across commodity markets where shortages in one market on, you know, makes the price and energy equivalent basis have to rise into price, you know, supply out of another market. And we, we, you know, we saw this in the in the 2000s, and it's more definitely seeing it today. So, um, I mean, I think it's a you know that the whole concept of using food for fuel. By the way, it's one of those things like LNG. It makes no sense. You know, there's there's lots of other lower cost uh, ways to create energy than trying to turn food, which is a high cost BTU to begin with, into energy. Yeah, we haven't mentioned hydrogen yet, but we probably best not do. Okay, <laughs> so. Deglobalization is coming. Let's talk about it. So is Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, are we going to look back in a few years and see this being sort of, the, I asked this question of Daniel Yergin, is this going to be the first shock resulting from energy transition or from what's going on there? Do, we, do you think this is, is this a systemic issue? We're going to see other conflicts flare up just because of the volatility in the world. You know, can you just talk to us about that? Well, first of all, let's go over to our other period of deglobalization, 1920 to 1980. And you just saw, you know, protection. And it's basically protecting your lower income groups. And it's really tied to the redistribution. It's kind of all one and the same in the sense that, you know, you're going to put up the inequality gets so out of whack on a global basis. You keep erecting policies to protect your, your lower income group. Why was the trade war there? Protect U.S. manufacturing. You create environments that, that protect your labor. Then you, you know, create a, um, an environment with you know, higher taxes and other types of uh, impediments to moving lower cost goods into your country. So we're definitely heading that direction. And that period went on for, 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 for 60 years because you kind of got it. You have to solve income inequality and all of these problems kind of simultaneously. And why did green, why did we get so green in the last 18 months? The answer is these governments needed to spend and spend big. What's the thing they're going to spend on is decarbonization. And why do they like decarbonization? It's because renewables make you deglobalize. You don't need to you know, import low-cost um, Middle East oil if you've got a bunch of, of renewables and everything providing your supply. I mean, that's part of the motivation here. You know, the, the motivation for being green extends well beyond trying to save the environment, particularly for places like, like China, which really like the idea of not being dependent upon on foreign oil. So, no, I think we're just scratching the surface on this. I don't think, hopefully, it doesn't last as long as it did between 1920s and the 1980s. But, you know, it's, it, but this is, you know, we have, we've done nothing to solve income inequality, which I'd argue really sits at the center of this. If you think about what yeah. happened in 1920, and that was the end of the robber baron era, you know, when you had the, you know, the Vanderbilts and the, and the Rockefellers and, you know, the Bezos of the world are, you know, that same level. Does that tie into Russia's motivations too, you think? Their motivations, they, they definitely fought, you know, they, they thought it was a regionalized part of the world and that or the world was more regionalized. You'd have less cohesion between the NATO countries in terms of their response because of the energy crisis, they would be more willing to give in. But also, I think the biggest failure with Ukraine was the inability for the Russians to move swiftly and decisively, you know, within a few weeks, which was the plan. And, oh, my God, what, are we six, seven, almost two months into this thing now? 
so the, yeah, no, the, the, this thing took a lot longer. And I think, you know, that's where probably where the biggest miscalculation, but I do believe that regionalization of fractured NATO was definitely in their thinking as they, they embarked on that. Okay, let's talk about oil itself. So we've obviously seen a big run-up in prices. This story could get a lot more, a lot worse, depending on what Europe and the US does with the energy sanctions on Russia. Can you help tease apart what you think would have happened without Ukraine's invasion and, and, and what happens with in terms of oil prices? I mean, this market was really tight going into that. You know, our, you know, our targets were 105, 115 already and before pre-invasion. You know, post-invasion, we're at one, we went to 135 with the SPR. We took it down to 125. But I want to emphasize a lot of risk to the upside around those targets. You know, because of it goes to you have two things going on here. You have the real physical disruption, which is the smallest part of this is what you see today. Then you have the political response shock, which is call it the revenge of the old political economy. And then you have the underinvestment theme. You know, the, the actual fiscal disruption is probably not going to be that large, particularly in you know, in oil and gas. We'll see what happens and when the sanctions actually, by the way, I like to say you 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 ain't seen nothing yet because the sanctions don't really go into effect until the end of this month. Then we're going to find out, you know, just how big that immediate supply disruption is likely to be. And so we are, we'll see that and we'll get an idea. That's why we come up with our 125. We're at 110 today. And the other shock is that the political shock, which hits all the different um, commodities in terms of the going backwards on energy liberalization and, and trying to find alternative energy supplies, particularly if you have you know, the Europeans do an oil boycott. But the other one is the underinvestment theme. Your no money's going into Russia. Capital has stopped flowing around the world in terms of creating, you know, the amount of oil supply that needs to be produced when we start to think out two, three years down the road. Russia technology is old. Decline rates are likely set in and production is likely to fall in terms of the capacity. That's what's likely, I think, you see the bigger, longer-term issue issue here is is the underinvestment thesis which puts you know upward pressure on, on prices on a longer term basis thanks for that so just a couple of more questions so the first one is inflation what is underlying fundamental rise in prices as a result of bottlenecks and also underinvestment in commodities and what is sort of the animal spirits of the market really starting to kick in and, and searing that sort of positive feedback loop raising inflation across the world i'm not a believer that this thing was a covid bottleneck crisis like many people it was the same revenge of the old economy under investment yeah whether the truck driver problem in the u.s was there before covid and once you ran out of truck drivers then you ran out of chassis because of under investment then you ran out of warehouses because of under investment ran out of port facilities transportation you know, the list goes on and on and on they're all old economy. You didn't have semiconductor production capacity, you know, extended, you know, too much farther past Taiwan. So, you know, all of these different factors, um, you know, are all pinpointed on underinvestment. You need to make investment in terms of solving this problem. It goes back to my point about when Volcker in 1979, he raised interest rates to 20% to kill off the inflation pressures. It worked, but remember 1979, 74 was the oil price spike. Um, you'd already had five years of CapEx. That was the North Sea, Norway, Alaska, North So, Gulf of Mexico, all that deep water stuff was coming on in 1980, 81. Just look at a picture of Brent production and when it came on. 
that really helped the inflation outlook when Volcker, uh, you know, did the shock to the system and raise rates. This time around, we just don't have that investment. I mean, the investment, again, it, it hasn't gone into the space. In fact, you know, I can give you an anecdote about, you know, hedge funds with oil, commodity hedge funds with great returns and the growthy funds, you know, that invest in tech with terrible returns. The commodity guy raised zero money and since the beginning of this year. The growth guys have raised tens of hundreds of billions of dollars um, to go back and keep putting on what used to work. Until that mentality changes and you put money to work in old economy, it's going to be really difficult to, to, to change the title. So these pressures, you know, I'm not going to get into debate whether if it's a peak inflation today or tomorrow, whenever it is. The underlying pressures are not going to go away until you make the investment, and we're just not investing. I think if that, I see, like I said, that term, that same thing over and over. That's really the message here. You need money in the space. You get, in fact, the way I think about oil is just going to keep going higher and higher and higher. It's going, feed me, feed me, feed me more capital. But nobody's feeding it any capital. It'll keep going higher until you finally get that investment to come. Yeah. And it's fascinating because the, the real world story at the moment is you're quite right. You know, the, the funds that we know struggling to attract investors like they were compared to what they were getting 10 years ago. You're seeing across the globe, rig companies, et cetera, getting divested. You know, there, there really is a fundamental, it's still continuing, of course, is that the returns on those hedge funds and returns in the commodity traders are exceptional, putting aside worries about capital and, and so forth. Do you think this is going to be a phenomenal period for the commodities trading sector? Or is it just going to be so volatile that you're going to see, you know, it's, it's going to be just too difficult to manage with the capital constraints they face, the, the funding constraints they face? Yeah, that's why we think we're in a vol trap, volatility trap, in the sense that higher volatility discourages investment. The lack of investment then reinforces higher volatility through a collapse in financial open interest, a collapse in physical inventories, which then leaves the, the market that much more exposed. So it's a vicious cycle. The only group that can break that cycle are the governments, step in and provide the financing and take out the risk to get investors to come back in. And I think we're getting to that stage. So if you talk about the great returns in commodities, uh, particularly, let's say, year to date, is the reality is people look at the space and they're going, oh, I don't want to go near it. Yeah, it may have had great returns, but ball adjusted. How great were they? And I think that, you know, oil's trading 150 ball right now. So that means you need to get 150% returns this year to get a sharp ratio above one. That's a pretty tall order to ask for. You mentioned they would take governments coming in and providing that security over risk. What would that actually look like? You know, it could be using, you know, the SPR to to guarantee buyback oil if it drops below a certain one, kind of like the farm policies do in the U.S. It could be providing subsidies to producers. Yeah, this stuff, I know it sounds far-fetched, but it, if you want the investment to flow in a 150 vol market, you got to protect somebody. And so, you know, it'd be that type of, 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 of arrangements. By the way, this is and, going on in gas. And I remember in the U.S. Northwest, in the U.S. West in 2000, I don't know if those listeners remember that gas and power market in California back then. Volatility was similar. It took government stepping in, providing those guarantees to get the capital to flow again. I think we're in a very similar environment. Yes, and carbon pricing as well, which I think was a, a key takeaway for me. Well, it's been really enjoyable. One, one final, I guess, it pertinent to this discussion is when we last spoke, immediately got off the uh, got off the call and invested in the uh, 
Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. I think it was around sort of 430 at that time. I think it's now at 750. Right at the top of the show, you spoke about that sort of lots of conviction, but lack of action behind it. Where do you think that index can go with all this in mind? No, I mean, our, our base case is up, you know, another 30 plus percent uh, over the next 12 months, which I think you know, is a significant upside relative to any other markets. And by the way, that, that owning some product like that, it ticks every box. You know, it's a hedge against higher interest rates and a rate hiking cycle. Here's a fact for you. 12 months after a rate hiking cycle begins, oil is always higher and on average 30% higher. And so, um, you know, it hedges that. Then it's a hedge against hostile markets, you know, where, where you have collapsing markets due to some type of geopolitical risk. It's a hedge against inflation. So, you know, you're ticking every single box to own commodities and the outlook is relatively positive. So, you know, I'm befuddled why we can't get more interest in the space, but, you know, hopefully that changes, you know, after people listening in, uh, to this session. Yeah, there you go. Well, as always, Jeff, it's been really interesting, very illuminating. And I look forward to, to hopefully having you back on in, in, in a year's time and, and, and getting an update from where we are, because it just did the pace of change and the volatility in this space is incredible. And as we've been saying throughout, it really sits at the center of what's going on in the world. Yep. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.